You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. These are the things that make us human. Asking ourselves, who am I? What does this mean? What really makes me happy? And if you ask those questions, grapple with them, I think that more often than not, you end up leading a more fulfilled life because you realize that some of the things that superficially seemed important uh, money, a job, or things like that. Up to a point, they are, but there are other things that are more important, and you can only fi- you can only find that out if you s- if you engage in this process of examining life, of examining what it means. What does it mean to be human? Fareed Zakaria and I sat down for this conversation back in early February. That was before the coronavirus snatched up so many lives and and livelihoods. It was also before the virus invaded every conversation. So it might be a relief from our daily diet of tragic updates to listen to something different. But it's interesting how much Fareed's thoughts about the importance of a fulfilled life, an examined life, how much that resonates now, now while we're all trying to cope with a world in which everything is uncertain. Fareed, this is so great that you could come in today. I'm such an admirer of yours. And I of yours, so this oh, is a great oh, this go, is a great pleasure. I didn't know I was going to get that back. That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. This is wonderful. But you know, you have such a breadth and depth of learning, and you are able to analyze what you know and help us understand it in a way that's so communicative, so so human that I really appreciate what you do. And I was struck once by something I read that you said, that you you learned to think at Harvard. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what, did you, what do you mean by that, by learning to think? Because I, I have a similar feeling, but I wonder if it's the same as yours. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's funny you pick up on that, because I think I meant it very purposefully. Um, so I grew up in India. My father was a was a politician, but a kind of Daniel Patrick Moynihan-type politician. He had gotten a PhD. He wrote books. My mother was a journalist. So I grew up with ideas and, I, and was very comfortable in a world of politics and economics and ideas. I, I went to college. I majored in history, so I was sort of steeped in history. But then I, I got to Harvard, and I got a PhD in political science. And it, what I realized that for me, it's obviously everyone has a different experience. For me, the training in social science uh, was sort of like a a, a systematic uh, 
program that taught me how to think analytically, how to say, all right, if you are going to say that the French Revolution was caused by X, how do you know it was caused by X and not these other three possible causes? What is your evidence that it was caused? What about this? What is the strongest way to disconfirm your argument? And that was, Harvard was a very intense uh, intellectual atmosphere in which that kind of thinking was forced upon you. And so for somebody like me who had grown up with a lot of ideas, comfortable with book learning, if you will, this being being told, no, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to know details. It's not enough to know about the subject. You have to make an actual argument. Uh, that proved to be uh, incredibly useful training ground. And I still look back on Harvard with this great fondness. In fact, you 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 read it uh, many, many years later. Harvard very kindly uh, asked me to give the commencement address. And that's where I, I said that. And yet you, didn't you go to Yale as an undergraduate? I did, I did. So it was and, a bit of heresy, you, yeah. And you were, <laughs> <laughs> I sit on the 50-yard line in the, in, the, in the football game. But you also were on the debating team. Yeah. And I was surprised to see you were on in the group called, what was it? Um, the Party of the Right. The Party yeah, of yeah. the Right. Well, that's a, that's a separate story. I, I, my politics haven't changed as much as it sounds like because that was the most right-wing party at, at Yale. What happened was I came from India, and um, you know I grew up in a country that was quasi-socialist and was Soviet-allied, and so I was rebelling against that in uh -huh. a sense. I was a young man, and I come to America, and there's Reagan calling it the evil empire, and I said, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, and I think it was the anti-communism more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, and the other part of it was that that particular party at that moment was a very intellectual party. There were, you know, one of my friends who was a member was a socialist, uh, a couple of real libertarians. Uh, so it was kind of more the conversation that I really appreciated. Uh, I, I, I was always socially very liberal. And then very quickly after that, after Yale, I realized that the Republican Party had essentially gone mad, particularly <laughs> on social issues. And, you know, so I was I was very comfortable with Bill Clinton's Democratic Party. I still am, by the way. Um, and so, but at that time, I, I encouraged my son, who's now in college, um, to to experiment, to explore, you know, to argue, to find people who disagree with him. Because I think I, you learn a lot from that. And I I so regret where we are politically in that sense, just because I think everybody's life uh, is, and mind is enriched by hearing the best case against what you believe. I couldn't agree more. It, it's striking how polarized we are now, isn't it? We we have the North Pole and the South Pole, and you have to belong to either one. Well, and, and it's, the pole it, it, extends all the way down to the equator. <laughs> yes. And if you cross yes. over the equator, everything gets crazy. Your toilet flushes backwards. <laughs> there's, there's there's no no temperate zone anymore. No temperate zone, and the identity, the polarization is is become essentially a matter of identity. It's not what people think. It's who who they are, you know, it's that they are, um, they live in cities or they live in the rural America, they're not educated or they're not educated, they are white or they're not white. In other words, these, uh, these qualities of identity have become charged with political meaning, which is very sad because it means there's no possibility for compromise. I sometimes feel like we, have, we in the United States have now become Sunnis and Shiites. You know, mm. we've become the, the Middle East, which I used to study for so long, where, you know, these, these divisions are sectarian. They are no longer policy differences. So 
as you think about it, would you say that this identity, the tribalization, is that the product of things like YouTube algorithms and misinformation efforts, or is that just a way to accelerate the tribalism? How do you get to fall into one category or another? I think it's a big, big question. The The simplest answer I can give you is I don't think it's YouTube uh, or social media. Those things, I think you're exactly right. They accelerate it. They reflect it. They reflect the reality. The The, the most uh, powerful evidence of this, of, of, of the fact that this is much deeper, is that we now live essentially close to people who agree with us politically. So that it used to be, if you looked at the suburbs around Washington, D.C., they were mostly mixed. Mm. Now, if you go to Bethesda, it votes 90% Democratic. If you go to McLean or to the the Virginia suburbs, they vote 90% Republican. I think it what it reflects is a number of things that have been happening. One is that we used to have our political parties were mixed up. So if you think about the Democratic Party you grew up with, it contained northern liberals, big city machine politicians, and southern segregationists. And they all existed in some kind of uneasy alliance, but they had to kind of navigate their differences as a result. Today, the parties have become ideologically pure. So so the two parties now offer starkly different views of, of America. Um, the other piece of it that I think uh, we don't like to talk about is it's the political identity and polarization has become quite class-based. On the one side, you have educated people who are knowledge workers, who live in cities, who are comfortable with immigration. And on the other side, you have rural uh, people who live in rural areas, often don't have a college degree, often somewhat suspicious of immigrants. And these, you know, these two sides look at each other very suspiciously. Each one thinks the other one is inferior in some way. Um, and that, I think, reinforces, you know, so you have political parties, you have this urban regional divide, you have the education divide, all of them reinforcing. And there are very few forces, if you think about it, that are binding, that are cross-cutting. I think, you know, part of it is that we've, we haven't had the kind of leadership that has tried to un- to unite us. I mean, Obama tried a little bit, but, you know, working class whites, they had, we'd always made a re- rather dirty bargain with, with them, which was to say, uh, look, your lives may suck, but you're better than black people. Mm. That was the that was the status uh, consolation prize that working class whites were given. Um, and when Obama becomes president, it rocks that world. Mm. They're like, wait a minute, you know, a black family in the White House. Um, and the person who understood this earliest and took advantage of it was Donald Trump. Remember, Trump begins the birther campaign when no Republican uh, politician of any seniority is doing it because Trump is a good salesman. Like any good salesman, he senses what, you know, he senses what the public is, 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 wants. And he senses that there is a white backlash to this black family being mm-hmm. in the White House. So while other Republican politicians like John Boehner, then Speaker of the House, would be coy and they would say, I, I don't know what President Obama's religion is. You know, that was, an imp- that <laughs> right. was sort of implying something. It, uh, yes. Trump was shameless. He was like, I will tell you, this man is a Kenyan Muslim who doesn't have an American passport. <laughs> and <laughs> the fact, and, and, you know, that was the beginning of Trump and Trumpism as a phenomenon. And it, and, and again, to give him a kind of dark credit, he got it earlier than anybody else that there was there was this unease. But there, it was an example, it seems to me, of the kind of disinformation that I was 
talking about. That certainly is an accelerator of the identity rift we have, but it also, to some extent, is an, an active agent. When you think of how severe it's become, not only do you get tweets, YouTube videos online because you've looked at similar ones before. That's what I meant about the, al- the algorithm of YouTube. You also have television news, supposedly news corporations, broadcasting a whole separate view of the news. The news ought to be the news. The interpretation of it can be free to be made by anyone. But you not only have that, you have that awful story that was in the paper last week as we talk about how the same textbook company manufactures one text of history for Texas and another one for California. And the stories are told differently for the pleasure of the parents of the kids uh, reading them. Yeah, look, you're exactly right. And the and, and I think your example illustrates the point I would make, which is um, these are reflections of our tribal reality, uh, not causes. Because think about it. The, the textbook case is a very old-fashioned media case, right? It's not It's not uh, social media. It's not the internet. It's old-fashioned textbook publishing. And what it tells you is that the real problem is not the technology. The real problem is that we have become so tribal and so susceptible. We want to only hear one side. We want to believe one side. We totally distrust the other side. We, we distrust their version of facts. And so it's that you know, when you get to be that tribal in a in a society with a private sector, you're going to have people catering to you. Yeah. The problem is that we that the demand has become so polarized that you have these two completely different. Look, I don't I don't want to discount what what you're saying because the birtherism uh, example does prove your point, which is you know essentially it was 100% false from day one, every part of it, and yet it caught on. But my, it, as you say, my point caught, is people it, wanted to hear this. That's right. You it know? caught on because there were fish in the pond to bite. Exactly. And and so Trump is a genius at that piece. Now, the fact that you can do that and it works is terrible. Um, it's the fact that it has no basis in fact uh, is terrible. But but my point would be it people want to hear this, and that's why it's working. I mean, it's a tragedy. But it maybe it turns out we're you know we're much less uh, uh, brain and a, a lot more gut than than we realize. So I'll make a point about the kind of what, what social scientists call asymmetric polarization, by which they mean it's not happening equally on both sides. You know that that while there are there is polarization on both sides, there is a different quality to the polarization on the right compared to the left. So on the left, the stuff that Trump does wouldn't work. You do not have people on the left who are essentially completely making stuff up, spewing pure lies and falsehoods. And yet there are people on the left who think that that fire ought to be fought was fire. Correct. And I think it's a mistake because, I th- first of all, I don't think it would work. And that's my point. It's, which it's, is it's, th- it's, it's not authentic. From when, like exactly. when Rubio tried to talk Trump talk, yes. he looked like 
he felt foolish. Exactly. And I think that the, you know, the Democratic electorate, which, by the way, is, is statistically, I'm not making a value judgment, but it is better better educated. The single biggest divide uh, between um, Hillary voters and Trump voters, for example, the single biggest divide was party registration, but the second largest was college education. Mm-hmm. People with a college degree were most likely to vote for Hillary. And, you know, that way it was the best predictor outside of party identification. And I think as a result of that, um, you don't find Democratic candidates just completely making up false, you know, falsehoods, and particularly this kind of ra- racially and emotionally charged falsehoods. That is something that happens much more on the right than the left. So that part of it does make me think that, yeah, the better educated you are, the less susceptible you will be to this kind of disinformation and fake news. The unfortunate thing is that negativity, for instance, just to give an example, on the internet, negativity rises faster than positive statements. Oh, my God. Do I know it? Yes, absolutely. Clearly, there is something in our brain, you know, and it's evolutionary biology, probably not not pure, not hardwiring, but, um, uh, you know, fear works better than hope. Um, neg- you know, negativity, as you say, we, we, are, we are more concerned about the downside than the upside. Mm. This is borne out in so many areas of our lives. Local news takes a half an hour to tell you two minutes of weather, two minutes of sports, almost no news of your local government. And the rest of the the rest of the time they spend on who got murdered. Right. The 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 two houses that 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 caught fire, not yeah. the not the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the houses they, that they didn't did catch those, fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, but, so, but what I you mean, talk about a, is a more complicated and worrying thing, which is so it's exactly as you describe, and it's getting it's getting more and more like that. So the places in America where you have real um, ongoing corruption and dis- and mismanagement tend to be local government. Um, because often they're one-party monopolies, if you think about, you know, because particularly as we're divided now into blue and red America. Who is going to act as a check on that when the local media operates as you described? Um, part of it is they don't have the money to have investigative reporting. So what's going on in Albany or in Springfield, in Illinois, where huge billions and billions of taxpayer dollars are being spent? Mm. Nobody is watching that. When there's a catastrophe like the water in uh, Flint, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. We can think of two or three such stories, but on an the, ongoing the, uh, basis, again, nothing. It, again, it's the catastrophe that draws the yeah. attention. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the slow decay or you know low-level corruption that just builds and builds never yeah. gets reported. And it used to, as as you know, the the one of the great tragedies of what's happened with media is. You know, I think the the national media will be fine. The New York Times will be fine. The Washington Post will be fine. But it's the it's the the disappearance of serious local reporting that I worry about because so much money, so much of government takes place at the local level, at the state level. Of course, the role of local government in dealing with catastrophes is suddenly front and center in the radically changed world we live in now. And so is something else we talked about, something crucial to how we make the decisions that shape our future, right after this.
Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Fareed Zakaria, and a question that will have an impact on all our lives in a way I never imagined back in February. What has led so many people not even to register to vote? Not only not voting, but not even putting their name down as wanting to vote. What's, what's caused that? Is it, is it just dismay that, that they feel no matter what they do, things won't get better? Or, or, or have they been educated to just be entertained and not feel they have a part to play? I think in this case, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, the United States makes it very hard to vote compared to almost every industrialized country and but actually even compared to countries like India. Um, voting is uh, not a holiday. Uh, you're not required to vote. In Australia, it's mandatory. It's tied to your driving license. You lose your driving license, as, as I recall. Um, there, the hours are you know, not particularly easy. Uh, we have not moved technologically. So there are parts of Eastern Europe, um, I think places like Estonia, where you can e-vote. Um, you can't do that. Um, and, of course, again, this is not, you know, both sides don't do it equally. There has been a systematic drive on the on the part of the Republican Party to disenfranchise people as, as as strongly as you can, and particularly people who are likely to vote Democratic. That is, if you look at the number of polling stations that have been shut down in college towns, uh, if you look at the number of polling stations that have been shut down in black areas, that is the unmistakable signal that seems to be being sent, and particularly happened after the Voting Rights Act was overturned by the by the Supreme Court. Look at what's happened in Florida. This is a scandal that most people don't don't know about. So in Florida, uh, felons, convicted felons who had then served their jail time, were not allowed to vote. Absolutely egregious, because this, the the core principle of Anglo-Saxon law is. When you've done your time, you have served, you, you have been punished, and you are now returned to society with full rights. These people were disenfranchised for life. So finally, you were able to get this on a, on a ballot initiative. 
And by a referendum in a Republican state, 65%, I think, of the peop- of people voted to say, no, we should restore voting rights to these people. The Republican legislature has then enacted a law that is se- effectively re-disenfranchises them by saying, how did they do I'll that? tell you how they're very clever. Most of these people, 75% are minority, most of them are poor. In the course of being, you know, carted around and inca- incarcerated and tried, they have accumulated a small fines, $20, $30, $40. Um, you know, they didn't show up for one hearing for a court. These are, remember, these are not people with elaborate legal counsel, anything like that. So what they say is if, if you have a single one of these outstanding fines um, and you try to get your voting rights reinstalled, you will lose them and you will be back, you know, will throw you back in the slammer effectively. But it, further than that, it says, if you sign a piece of paper saying you want your rights back and you do not list every one of these outstanding debts and pay them, but if you don't even list them, then you are guilty of perjury, mm. which is now a felony. Now, you think if you've spent, you know, 10 years as a, you know, in jail as a felon, you've you gone, won't you, remember them all. For and, one and you're not going to sign a piece of paper that, that potentially was going to throw you back into the slammer. Sure, right? so, so, so nobody will, so will no, ask. So, so this initiative that was meant to re-enfranchise one and a half million, I think 1.25 million mm. people has re-enfranchised in the tens of thousands because everyone is petrified of these. So the, the, the legislature has effectively undone what the, the public wanted to do simply because they do not want, and you can imagine the stakes are very high. Remember how how many votes uh, Gore won or lost California, uh, you know, Florida by, right? So if, if you have 1.25 million people, 75% of whom are minorities, and you enfranchise them, Florida becomes a blue state. But we've we've descended into what sounds like a Jeremiah against Republicans. Is that is I that think real? on, vote, that on a... vote on voter suppression, uh, it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that this is not a this is not each both sides do it. There's a lot of stuff both sides do, and and I want to emphasize, I think it's completely honorable and understandable to hold views that the Democrats are extremely bad for America, dangerous, have horrible policies. That may all be true. In other words, you know, they're, they're going to nationalize and socialize uh, the country. They have too much regulation, too high taxes. But that's what I'm talking about now is the 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 fact that, you know, on one side you have the birther movement. On one side you have voter suppression. I don't find that there is an equivalent on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think I'm being fair on that, that these are pathologies that have developed on the right that are anti-democratic. I'm trying to find some way to reduce the us versus them thing. And, and I think that was under my my question about not, that sort of reflected a desire not to demonize yeah, the Republicans. Yeah. So here's one way that it might help. One of, the, one of the reasons things have gotten so polarized, I think, is that um, the Republicans are able to, w- to win even when they don't really win by which I mean, look, six of the last seven presidential elections, the Republicans lost the national vote. Six of the last seven. Um, if if you had a system that, that was a little bit better aligned, where if the Republican Party went as far, uh, you know, went in certain directions, they paid an electoral price for it, they would also come, to, come back to the center. Um, right now, they're paying no price, not because the majority of the public... 
agrees with them, but because they can win even when they have a minority of the public. So this is happening in state after state. It has happened at the national level. So that may be one way to think about it, which is it's a, in democracy, it's a good, elections are a good disciplining force, but only if the majority actually gets its way. All right, right. I'd, for a long time, I've admired the Constitution mainly because it recognizes that people will act in their own self-interest and it sets up traffic lights to make the the many, the interfering self-interests not collide and not take over the highway and to the exclusion of the other interests. And it sounds like an effort, for instance, to get to the heart of gerrymandering and make it hard for both Democrats and Republicans to gerrymander so that one one doesn't want to get revenge on the other every 10 years, that something institutional like that could be effective in lowering the chance of one, one party over the other unfairly gaining a governmental control. Does that sound possible? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, by the way, gerrymandering is something that both sides have done, you know, that, that's, that's and it's entirely idea. constitutional, unfortunately. I mean, they, you know, uh, Elbridge uh, Jerry uh, is one of the founding fathers. I mean, the yeah, name did, comes... When, when did he do that? In the 1790s. I mean, it's very old. Or maybe, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly, but certainly in the first 30 or 40 years in of the In this Republic. country? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the word gerrymandering comes from Elbridge Jerry. Yeah. Uh, because it, the, the shape did look like a salamander. It, exactly. It, yeah. um, and and uh, so hence Jerry and salamander, so, right. so gerrymander. Um and I think that if if you could, if it would require some kind of a truce, as you say, because uh, it's clearly you know the the, the Constitution allows allows for the drawing of whatever uh, constituencies you want. It, there's no there's nothing that says it should they should be you know they should look roughly like squares or rectangles or right. make you know geographic sense. So it would have to be just a kind of gentleman's agreement, um, and and. It, and it would, I think, um, and I think both sides might recognize that it would, it would temper both sides. The extremists on both sides. And if you talk to politicians, they're well aware of many of these problems in private, and they decry them. Uh, but they are also creatures of incentives. Um, you know, they're not going to commit harakiri. So you look at all the Republicans who denounce Trump, like Lindsey Graham, who now eagerly embrace him. It's not as bizarre as people make it out to be. Look, these people, this is their job. These are their professions. These are their careers. Um, they don't want to be unemployed tomorrow. They don't want to be, you know, left with absolutely no influence, no role, no voice. I get it. I wonder if this is a clue to anything. I read, I think, I think in, in your book on the, in defense of uh, liberal education, you said we do not spend enough time thinking about the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. That sort of encapsulates for me your underscoring the importance of a liberal education, not simply how to manage a company or how to play a violin, but to get into the thinking that has gone into our understanding of life and one another over centuries, as the, as the Greeks first began to do. Is that a way out of our our mess to think about something more important than what we do every day to make money? 
I, I would hope so. I mean, I think you're exactly right to start with the Greeks because really what happens is on, for most of human history, human beings are creatures of instinct and survival. And they look up at this world that they don't understand uh, and they they make up stories. You know, when they, they see the sun uh, and they say there must be a sun god who drives a chariot across and then he goes away and that's why the night comes. And wait, wait, like that. that's not how it happens. <laughs> um, and the Greeks are the first ones to start to apply reason and in a sense try to conquer that sense of igno- that ignorance and that fear. And once they start to do that, they realize that this is really the most, you know, this is the most profound thing to, that a human being can do to, you know, to examine life. Remember, Socrates mm-hmm. says the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and I think that, f- you know, we lost it for a while, for, you know, until the Renaissance, but this idea of asking those questions returned and again has been central to the to the rise of Europe, to the rise of the West, and to the rise of America. And we we seem to be forgetting it, and that's my fear. You know that we really both at a at, a, at the largest level, we I think we we're forgetting it. But even at a personal level, that these are the things that make us human. The 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 asking ourselves why, what is happening, who you know, who am I, what does this mean, um, and it. I think that if you do it, you enrich your life. Uh, and you enrich your life also by asking questions more profoundly about like what really makes me happy. You know, is it really this job? Is it? And and if you ask those questions, grapple with them, I think that more often than not, you end up leading a more fulfilled life because you realize that some of the things that superficially seemed important, uh, money, a job, or things like that, up to a point they are, but. There are other things that are more important, and you can only fi- you can only find that out if you if you engage in this process of examining life, of examining what it means. And I think, it, particularly in an age where computers are now going to claim to do all the stuff that that human beings have done, you know, rational calculation and such, um, we once again, like the Greeks, have to ask ourselves: Okay, well, what what is it? That we do best. What is you know? What, what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Uh, if if the if the machine can do the the calculations that I thought, you know, were, were what set me apart. Well, okay, now you have to now you have to do you know you have to focus back on the on what is the core human humanistic uh, uh, aspect of life. And AI, artificial intelligence, presents us with a a dilemma in that it comes up with solutions for us to severe problems, but we don't know how it arrives at those solutions. So it becomes an all-pervasive, unconscious mind. And unlike our own unconscious minds, we can't probe it very well. Exactly. So human, human judgment and talent is required on that end, but on the other end, human judgment, talent, intelligence is going to be required to figure out why the AI came out the way it did and why the, the decisions came the way they were. And then there's a further part, which is explaining it to the public. So imagine a medical AI system where you know you put all the data in, the, the, the machine says, okay, here's what you need to do. Uh, you've got to, you know, take this course of, you know, chemo and radiation and such. 
The doctor's task now is not to try to outsmart the computer, but to make sure that the the inputs were right, try to understand why the the, the machine came to the conclusion yeah. it did, and then explain it to the patient. So it becomes more a kind of life coach uh, mm. rather than a pure analytic one. It's a slightly humbling idea because, of course, for doctors particularly who think they're very brainy and analytic, no, no, the machine is going to be more brainy than you. But, but the machine can be more human than you. The doctor with the patient care primary in mind is faced with this suggestion from the machine sometimes, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine, that seems totally uh, counterintuitive. And now the doctor has to decide, is he dealing with a machine that's a genius or a moron? <laughs> exactly. And that's what I mean. That's where the skill and the judgment comes in. And and, and if, you, if you figure it out and you realize, you know what, the machine was right. I, because remember, the argument for AI is in that in that case, particularly medical stuff, is overwhelming in the sense that you know a good doctor is going to have a have a knowledge of three or four hundred cases, right? Right. I mean, a, 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 the machine is looking at twenty five million cases, you know, with articles, cases. The, the data set that a machine can go through in seconds is larger than any hundred doctors could go through in their entire lives. Uh, you know, probably any million doctors. So, so. You you have to try to figure out what's going on. You have to then explain to the patient because none of this matters if the patient doesn't follow the treatment. <laughs> right. right. So it becomes a, a a skill about persuasion, about you know, about m- making them understand, about bonding with them. As I say, it's sort of like you become a life coach rather than just a just the brainiac. And that's why when we work with physicians at the Center for Communicating Science. We focus on how to develop a greater ability at empathy because some studies have shown that when the physician makes it, is able to make it clear to the patient that there's an empathic stance in regard to the patient, the patient is more likely to follow the doctor's orders. And medical schools don't do it, so I'm glad you're doing it. Medical schools don't teach doctors uh, those skills at all. Not, not generally, no. But we skipped over something important, I think. We, we talked about your saying how, how important it is t- to think about the meaning of life and that a liberal education helps you do that. What conclusions have you come to about the meaning of life? Any? <laughs> oh my God! Uh, you know that that strikes me as uh, as a a very long, uh, you know, maybe a podcast in and of itself. Um, <laughs> well, we have at least thirty seconds left. <laughs> that might be the best way to do it: is to answer it as quickly as you possibly can. Look in the in the course of my life, I I tried to think hard about what. Um, how to balance, for me, uh, the the ch- the challenges were doing something that I regarded as important and purposeful uh, that would have that would have an impact that would, you know, I I, I felt, and maybe this came to me from the fact, as I said, my father was a politician, my mother was a a journalist, my father came out of the Indian independence movement, so this very very purpose driven um, sense of his life. Um, also, however, being conscious of the fact that I wanted to have a more meaningful private life, um, 
than perhaps my father had been able to have to be totally honest we had he was he was a great father but it was a very distant relationship it was very traditional i wanted to have a much deeper closer relationship with my my kids um and i wanted to have a a relationship you know a private life that was really meaningful in politics it's impossible because you somebody who's your friend one day has to be your enemy the next day it's it's all expedient and so you know i've one of the reasons i've ended up where i am um, writing about issues, talking about issues, communicating to the public, trying to play a role of kind of general um, education, but not actively participating, is because it was the right balance for me to be engaged, to be purposeful, to try to make a difference, but not to jump in there in a way that so distorts your life that you can have, it's very difficult to ha have a personal life. And that came from a product of right trying to think about you know what what made sense what gave meaning to me um it's it's not the only way i mean there's also thinking about life at a much broader more philosophical level but i think that given the time constraints this was a this is a better example but i think you have to do it all because otherwise you know otherwise you're just acting on instinct well your effort to communicate with the rest of us is one of the things that makes my life meaningful, and I'm really glad that you do it. I'm, I'm grateful to it. We have, we have to bring our conversation for the moment to a close, but we always end with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you game? Sure, they're, absolutely, absolutely. Might, they might be easier than the one about what's the meaning of life. <laughs> First one is, what do you wish you really understood? physics at the highest level. I loved it as a kid. Um, I took it all the way through high school and actually even started out in college. Um, and I think I find particularly when you get to string theory and things like that, I'm kind of struggling. Yeah, well, Richard Feynman said, if you understand uh, quantum mechanics, you haven't been listening. <laughs> 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 so there may be things yeah, yeah. that That's most of us will line. never yeah, get. Yeah. So next question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Um, I think the best way is to be able to present the actual data. In other words, not to say to somebody you're wrong, because people react negatively to that, understandably, but to actually present the data. In other words, say, here's the study, here's the, here's the polling data, you know, and that, that's much better, and then let them look at it. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I have been asked, and I don't know if it's the strangest question, but I've been asked deeply personal questions. You know, I, I don't think of myself. I, I mean, I'm a, like a, a third-level celebrity, if, if, if even celebrity is the right word. But, um, and people ask me personal questions like what kind of, you know, I mean, a version of Clinton's uh, do you wear briefs or boxers? <laughs> and I was, I'm so intensely uncomfortable answering that kind of thing because as my kids always tell me, like, you're really a third-rate, third-grade celebrity. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. That was my next question. <laughs> well, no, the next question actually is, how do you stop a compulsive talker? That's tough. It's, a, it's actually much harder than you might imagine. I have one great advantage. Most of my interviews are taped. So I don't always have to stop them. I can just edit it in in, right. in production. But what you have to do is to find an artful moment. Uh, and and it's, it's a moment to inter, interject, to 
to come in um, without seeming to be rude. Because if you do, if you if you're rude, it changes the nature of the conversation. Because now they're a little bit upset, at, offended at you know. So that's one of the. It's actually a, it's it's a good question because it's one of the challenges you do face. Because look, a lot of the people I interview are. Uh, or at least think of themselves as very eloquent. <laughs> so they go on. <laughs> what if you're sitting at a dinner party next to someone you don't know? How do you start up a real conversation? You ask them or something about their lives, about their personal. Everybody has a story. I think that you can learn something from anybody. You can learn something from a cab driver. You can learn something from everybody has a story. Everybody has something that animates them, that energizes them. You know, often it's often it's the kids, often it's their fa- their you know their background, uh, where they came from. A great thing about America is everyone comes from somewhere, and so that I, I have never found that difficult, actually. What gives you confidence? Uh, I think probably growing up in the family I did. I, I think it's a great question. I think it's because con- confidence is such a force multiplier, right? Mm. I mean, look at Donald Trump. Um, I think that in my case, uh, yeah, just growing up with a, fa- a father who was very strong-willed and confident and watching that example and seeing, um, admiring it probably. Last question. What book changed your life? <sighs> changed my life is a big, is a big uh, a topic. Um, the book that influenced me most as a high school student was Jacob Bronowski's The Ascent of Man, which is a great, it's actually a TV program uh, about the history of science. And it just, it was one of those books that made me realize again about how to think, uh, you know, what it meant to think seriously. Um, the book that probably influenced me most uh, as, a, as, a, as a scholar, you know, at a later point in my life was Tocqueville's Democracy in America. For two reasons. One, it's a truly spectacular work of scholarship. Um, still has so many insights about the nature of democratic societies and such. But also as an immigrant, it taught me so much about America and the idea that this French aristocrat writing in the 1830s could have shed so much light uh, to an Indian immigrant in the 1980s, which is when I read it, is kind of stunning. And it tells you something about the power of thought and the power of you know good thinking. Like this guy had looked at at America and and was able to communicate something that resonated so far and so wide and so deeply. I'm so glad you said that because I remember being astonished by it and loving it when I first read it years ago. And you make me want to go back because it's it's a wonder that 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 piece of writing is just amazing. You're a wonder. Thank you so much for read. I had such a good time talking with you. It's a huge pleasure, and I have to tell you, a part of my Americanization was watching Mash when oh, I was when I was oh, so in college and graduate school, <laughs> and it you know because it, it, it helps you understand the country in a way that that you can't from books, and uh, you know you understand the people, the idiom, the culture, the humor. So thank you. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. 
You can catch Fareed each week on CNN Worldwide, where he's the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS. He's also a columnist for The Washington Post, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and a best-selling author. For complete details about Fareed, you can visit FareedZakaria.com. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter directly at, at Fareed Zakaria. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kuhaley Dutt. Kuhaley, this has been such a fascinating conversation. The bias that you talk about, that we all have, is such a revelation to so many of us. Have you been surprised at how surprised everybody is? Absolutely. I mean, when I took the test myself, I was surprised. I mean, we all like to believe that we are fair and objective and unbiased. And so when a test reveals to us that we're not as unbiased as we like to believe, it definitely comes as a surprise. And no matter who we are, we're going to find out we're more biased (laughs) than we thought we were. So how should we feel about ourselves after we take the test? I think everyone who takes the test should feel good about themselves for the fact that they had the courage to take the test. (laughs) Kuhaley does. Next time on Clear and Vivid. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.